get that support straight away and then understand that that failure may in fact be what is going to contribute to the six to the greatest success of something else. Perhaps it's here for a reason, I don't know. I'm Danny Vallant and this is Dirty Linen, the podcast that takes the issues the hospitality industry finds hard to air in public and shakes them all about. For 11 years, Kate Bartholomew has been an owner of some of Melbourne's most exciting, fun and progressive restaurants. She owns Coda and Tonka in the city. She's a dynamic person around town and she's here because she reached out to me on Instagram before I'd even started this podcast to mention that she had a lot of stuff to say about mental health and hospitality. Kate, I think you agree with me that these are important conversations to be having. Yes, I can't think of anything more important really to talk about. You know, we're all talking about health and safety with this horrible virus, but what about our mental health and the impact it's having on everybody, I'm sure. So yes, thank you so much for thinking of me in this space and for everything you're doing for our industry. Yeah, it's, I mean, we're all in it together as we as we keep hearing, um, but yeah, there are all kinds of different ways that we can support one another through, yeah, what we're going through. Of course, it's it's a global pandemic, but it does impact on people in such different ways. Um, and we last week we spoke to Annie Smithers, um, and it was such an amazing privilege to have her on the show. She's such a fantastic person. But you said that that chat meant something particular to you, Kate. Yeah, I mean, I think listening to Annie talk. I mean, Annis, um, Annie is an industry legend. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But to hear part of her backstory uh, was such a privilege to to listen to that podcast. And just some things really resonated with me. You know, when she said, I was completely and utterly fucked. (laughs) And I was just like, oh, my God, yes, yes. I just, that line just stood out for me and I've, God, I felt that. And, you know, why is it that we get to this, you know, ground zero, this horrible point before we can actually say, you know, she talks about grabbing her doctor, walking past saying, I'm desperate, I need help. Why is it that so many of us get to rock bottom before we can be honest and say, oh, my God, I'm in the shit, I need some help? Um, and I, I, I also love that she went on to say, you know, I called the tax department and said, I can't pay this bill. You know, it's just the situation. I just thought that was absolutely brilliant. Um, the podcast was amazing. <laughs> well, so I didn't mean it. It's not, we, this isn't the podcast where we say how great the podcast is, but thanks. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> Sorry. Did you, ha- did you have, a, um, have a key experience going to her restaurant as well? Yeah, I did. I went to her amazing restaurant. A couple of my girlfriends, Sunday and Sarah, had organised a group of sort of 10 of us to go to Trentham. We got this amazing house and it was just this beautiful experience. And I'd had a baby. I can't, my mind isn't very good at organising the chronology of um, when I started to get sick. But I think it was about Henry, my little boy, who's now three and a half and he's gorgeous. I think he was um, about one at this time and I was so unwell. And I remember we went, That they took me that night to the restaurant in Trentham and it was the first time I could see colour and feel warmth in my body and it was just the most beautiful dining experience and I really, when I was listening to the podcast, I went, oh, my God, the first time I felt signs of life after having been so sick was sitting at Annie's restaurant, which I thought was, you know, a really nice um, a, a nice thing when I was listening yesterday. Yeah. 
Wow, but it sounds like you were not in a good place. So what does being sick mean for you? Well, um, you know, I think a, a, lot, a lot went into it. But, you know, when I look back and I've worked with many psychologists over the years and that just occurs because, you know, you move overseas or you move – I grew up in Geelong. So, you know, when I was a kid and I started you – know, I was a very anxious child exceptionally anxious and my dad left when I was about 12 or 13 um, and and my mum is the most amazing mum on earth and she gave us the most perfect amazing childhood which I'm so proud of but when I think about the particular times of when I began to get sick um, it was around when dad left and I developed this thing called obsessive compulsive disorder and um, it was my way of trying or feeling in control of a situation and, you know, a whole lot of behaviours um, ensued sort of like tapping. For me, it was tapping four times. Like I was constantly it's, – it's really hard to imagine if you haven't had it. Um, but there's this constant feeling of balance. So if I touch my leg on one side, I have to touch it four times and then repeat it on the other leg. It's like this wild thing. And if you don't do – the, the compulsion, if you can't do it, then something catastrophic is going to happen to your family, for example. You know, so you really feel this guilt. If I don't do this behaviour, then something terrible is going to happen. It's just this crazy disorder that just kind of took over. Did that seep into much of much of your life? Like you found, like it was, was that a dominating force in your life? Oh, huge. And, uh, you know, that was from when I was, let's say, 13, and I think I was able to start breaking it with the help of Michael, my now husband, you know, and, and I was so embarrassed about it. You know, I used to walk past like at nighttime and have to turn all the lights on in the house on and off four times. And it was really hard for my family to understand it. And of course, I didn't want to talk about it because I was too embarrassed. So, you know, it was a really strange experience. But when when you start engaging in those um, behaviours, they tend to get more and more and more and build and build and build. Um, and it got to the point where I, I stopped driving. It just wasn't safe for me to drive because the I, I had to do this behaviour. You know, so if I turn my indicator on, I have to turn on four times and then, do you know what I mean? And it's just mm. a completely... Um, paralyzing force so it, I, I didn't start to get control of it probably till I met my husband when I was 23 and he was amazing with it he was just completely you know he kind of made it all a bit of a joke and and made it really light-hearted and he brought that forward in me to the point you know he's like I just felt that vulnerability in me was completely understood and then I could kind of work through it I suppose that had you you know, when you're in that position and that there's this force that's dominating your life, were you able to just move ahead in other ways? Like, had you finished school? Had you embarked on a career? Like, is there, yeah, were other things happening at the same time? Yeah, they did. And I think in some ways, like, I learned to channel it quite well. For example, like, this is an extreme, but in year 12, if I wrote four essays on this book, I'd have to write four essays on that book. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So... <laughs> That do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and and then there'd, there'd be sort of these frantic, crazy writings, and Mum would be dropping these essays into my teachers around 
Geelong and you know so so there were there were times when I could channel um, that compulsion in a really good way and I ended up being completely shocked by how I did at school um, and I got into do arts at Melbourne Uni and um, did honours at Melbourne and that was just an amazing experience for me and the whole time I'd been working in restaurants and I think there's something you know when I was a kid I started working in restaurants when I was uh 14 and the kind of two choices you make were I always knew I wanted to work have money that was always important to me but um, there was kind of the, the retail option or there was the restaurant option but I felt like it was really good for my busy brain to be busy which is what a restaurant gives you you know you, you never stop so that noise and the constant mental interruption of customers really worked for me and work has been the backbone really of um, stabilising my mental health, if that makes sense. Yeah. I like a busy environment to distract me from those thoughts and those compulsions. That works for me. It's it's so interesting because I could imagine that although it it could help and offer that stabilising force and that, you know, something fit to occupy your brain, that it could also amplify those things that you're prone to in some ways is was that a danger that you could feel oh yeah definitely I mean from a practical sense you know if I'm about to carry three big heavy hot plates into the restaurant I can't complete my compulsions which usually are hand-based so it might be tapping or rebalancing or whatever it might be but I, I couldn't do that so what I have to do was trick myself at the pass so I'd be standing there and I was like, if you do this compulsion, you are going to, in fact, cause some sort of catastrophic event to your family. So I kind of trick I trick the OCD. So I'd say, right, you're not allowed to do that anymore because we've got to get to this table. So it was just this kind of crazy, exhausting mind game. I mean, it does sound exhausting. It's, and the stakes are so high, like that you had to put, you know, this, this, these catastrophes in front of your mind all the time. It's very, it's very upsetting. It's, uh, yeah, like you, you took a lot of responsibility on with these thoughts. Yes, I think that's a really, um, when I was thinking about it last night, I think that's a really good way of putting it. I kind of assumed some kind of responsibility for my family and, you know, I'm going to say this now and I'll regret it or whatever, but when I was a kid, I used to wake up, you know, of course, I'm so stressed, I'm thinking all the time. And I used to sit outside my family's bedrooms and listening to them breathe because, you know, I needed to make sure that everyone was breathing and everything was okay. And for somehow I kind of assumed this role of caretaker of my family. Of course, my mum was doing an exceptional job and there was never any danger, but my young brain was just completely fried Um, and, you know, and my obsessive compulsive came into that, like constantly checking their safety at night. Wow. um, And then repeating going through the rooms four times over, four times over. And, you know, and like I've got this amazing psychologist now. I've I've met my right match uh, and her name's Philippa. She works just on Collins Street and she just – you know, I often talk about that little girl and just that I want to hug her and tell her I'm sorry and tell her, you know, it's going to make me cry, tell her, you know, I wish I could take that all away from you. Yeah. And she's like, but you're her. <laughs> you made it through. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, I'm looking at that girl. You can tell her right now. You're her. You're you. So, you know, it's hard to 
go back and think about the level of stress that I was under. Um, but it's kind of amazing to be here now and then to talk about it. Wow. It's so, I mean, you're making me cry too. It's just, <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like you want to separate yourself from her and look after her and apologize to her or look after I her. Know, I know. I want to protect her. Yeah. But at the same time, you, you are the victory, you know, yeah. like you are, you are her success as well. So yeah. it's, it was a very, it, it was a very, uh, I guess, draining and circuitous oh path that she took but yes I it know. is okay right like <laughs> yeah it's so good for some reason your mind had to go down those those pathways yeah and to, I think um yeah to search for peace and once I got to Michael once I found my Michael and and he brings to me this joy and laughter which I'd never kind of like what, what he likes about me most is what I would consider most vulnerable and something I'd need to cover up but he loves me even more because of that. And to have felt that, be completely authentic with him, was just a complete escape from what my mind had been doing for all of these years and this hiding this OCD behaviour. And once he celebrated and got it out in the open, I didn't need to do the behaviours nearly as much. So, you know, once I was sort of into my 20s. I was feeling much better and, you know, although I decided driving was no longer safe for me I, and I still don't drive um, because there's been too much sort of recent stress. Anyway, I don't drive. Um, but um, <clears throat> unfortunately, so, so things were, were going really well in my sort of 20s. I'm 37 now, I think. I think I'm 37. And then things really got ugly when we um, – bought our third restaurant hotel oh yeah okay and yeah so and that made it almost to the day of two years um and there were a whole lot of reasons hotel didn't work um so so many reasons and a lot of them was because I just had a baby my beautiful Henry and I'd become incredibly unwell with postnatal depression um but with hotel Many of the reasons that didn't work, I mean, Michael was trying to look after me and a baby, the other two restaurants, there was a, a terrible suicide that occurred uh, within that, within Otea, within that Otea family um, that crippled. Uh, it, look, it, it certainly wasn't that, but there were just so many pieces um, about it. And then when, when, when a restaurant fails, um, the, the anxiety and the uh, just humiliation around it was so difficult and I think I've been thinking a lot about people at the moment you know as restaurants are failing you know I just recall so deeply those feelings of just shame you know just so embarrassed and then you throw in the financial layer and it decimated us just decimated and you know once you know we'd been through the recession with Coda and we'd made a bit of money and we were feeling comfortable and then we just blew, blew the lot um, and then I'd had a baby my, my beautiful Henry and am I talking too fast no but have there is have a, have a sip of water and take a breath mm. I mean you I mean <laughs> I guess that, it's, a, it's a so much Kate and such a crush of major events in your life uh, that it uh, it's I mean there's so many directions that I I want to go, um, but I th I think I want to ask you why do you why do you feel shame about it? 
Why was there that shame that was so crippling? Great, great question. I've, I've got here, I've wrote out some notes to try and organise my brain. Um, and there's this most amazing, she's a social worker called Brené Brown. Have you heard of her? I have, yes. And I've, yeah, I have watched that TED talk. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the one I'm talking about is vulnerability. Um, you know, I, this goes for 20 minutes. And if anyone out there listening, if you could do it, I, it's just such an important thing for me. But she talks about connection and the feeling of disconnection and shame and just how absolutely essential it is that we are vulnerable and that we show our vulnerability to other people. And I suppose that was a big part of me wanting to do this today was going, oh my God, I can't believe I'm talking about this stuff out loud, but we need to yell it from the top of the buildings for each other and we need to understand that our vulnerability is such, um, I, I wrote down a word, so endearing, it's so human and I think, you know, immediately when I've had so many people with mental health issues in our restaurants come to me and say, you know, whenever I sit down with them, I just want to hug them and never let them go. That, that connection couldn't be closer. When someone tells you, I'm not doing so well, you immediately feel absolutely privileged and connected for that conversation. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Because, I mean, apart from the fact that it's their, I guess, trusting you, it also would probably let a few pennies drop where you can then look back on behaviours that perhaps might have presented as, as frustrating or tricky to work around. Then you can, once things are in their proper context and it's because it's a person that's having some feelings and some difficulties, then I guess your, your compassion comes to the fore as well, doesn't it? Oh, definitely. I mean, that's the huge part of it. And I think we all need to talk so much more about about this, about mental health, it's just frightening what's happening out there with particularly male suicide. It's just out of control and we've got so much to do. So, um, yeah. So let's talk about postnatal depression and about being a, a mother and a restaurateur. Um, was, it, was the postnatal depression something that sort of crept up on you or did it like swallow you like like a wave like what what was it like yeah sure um I think of of my experiences in mental health the postnatal depression was um the the depths of the the worst thing that I've been through and um when you know Michael really didn't want to have kids and sort of talked him into it and we had our beautiful Henry but during the pregnancy you know he was really anxious and worried about the whole thing and I said he said to me everything's going to change and I said nothing is going to change I said, <laughs> oh my he'll goodness. fit into our lives you know I was completely delusional um and nothing's going to change we're going to be able to he's going to be a restaurant baby you know all these sorts of things and he is and he's so beautiful but when I had um Henry at about 19 weeks I had to have an emergency stitch yeah and which meant that I um was on bed I was bedridden wow for the balance of the pregnancy and that just came in and completely upturned everything I'd promised him about this experience. Of course. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't even walk to the – it was just a, a complete disaster. And then I got these – you have to take a lot of progesterone when you do something like that. And then I got this crazy tumour and so I had to have all these operations and oh. I was completely um, – I don't know what the word is. It was just so full on. Um, and then beautiful little Henry came and, my God, I just loved him. But 
the, the postnatal depression was so frightening because it's really hard to talk about that relationship because it was never about Henry and it was never about Michael or my family. It was just how I felt. And, you know, I recall those hours sort of in that year leading up to going to Annie Smithers' restaurant, the darkness. I remember looking out and there was no colour in the trees. There was no smell in the air. Um, and every single minute I dreaded, I couldn't handle thinking about the coming night or the coming morning and the sleep deprivation was um, catastrophic and the whole thing just sort of fell apart and I would just spend my days begging Michael to please leave me. I said, just take everything, take my wallet, just walk away. I just, I, I beg you to leave me. You, you cannot stay with me. I'm, I was just so sick. Um, and he and my mum kind of nursed me back to health while looking after this beautiful little baby and with a failed restaurant and, oh, my God, it was just shit. That is so devastating to hear about and it must have been, I'm sure it's one of those things where you, you've you got this beautiful boy at the same time and, as you said, you know, you loved him so much. It must have been so hard to not not be who and how you wanted to be through that it must have been another layer of difficulty through that yeah absolutely um since then as well you know I found it really hard to find my place back at work as well you know I went back I did my first Sunday double when Henry was three weeks old whoa because I was desperate I was desperate to get back to work I was I needed it I needed something to quieten my brain something to help me something to you know, and it was just a disaster of a day. The tills went down at 2pm and everyone wanted to pay their bills and I was just sobbing on the bar. And, oh, oh, my God. goodness. It was just a disaster. Um, but every day now you sort of creep back into a, you know, healthier, I feel better about myself, you know, all those sorts of things. But it's been a full, full-on recovery with a whole lot of hands on deck. So I'm so grateful. Were you having treatment uh, through that period? Yeah, so I went to my GP um, and I had a long history with psychologists. Went to my GP and she's not like, you don't have postnatal depression, you've just got flat-out depression. And I was like, oh, whatever. So she put me on a drug called Cymbalta and that made a big difference, I think. I was sort of able to kind of get out of bed a bit and that, that made a big difference. In fact, I wish I'd been treated on medication, just looking at my own personal example, no comment on anybody else, but I wish I'd had some kind of medical, some kind of um, treatment when I was younger to quieten that really um, intense brain. I just could have lived a different experience. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I suppose you've, once you, I guess it's, it's so hard to know, isn't it? I mean, I'm no doctor, but I guess I guess the effect that the medication has at a certain time in your life, it, you may not be able to map that back, and it would have done this then. I don't know. I don't know how you. I don't know how you look back at things. But yeah, I can. I hear what you're saying. Um, yeah. So, and that was good. And then, and then I found Philippa, and then um, you know, massive efforts from my mom and Michael, and you know, our whole work team and my gorgeous friends and my sister, and then I sort of crawled out of this cave and. And I'm feeling actually amazing today. I feel amazing despite the world's kind of 
on fire, I feel really lucky and grateful and happy. And is that a day-by-day proposition, Kate, or is, is it something you have to, you know, keep an eye on or do you feel like you're operating generally from a position of, you know, greater strength and, and security and, um, I guess, certainty? Definitely, yeah. Yeah, I feel um, certainly feel like I, I'm operating well nine days out of ten, um, which is amazing. It is incredible. Is, are there things that you need to make sure that you do so that you do get that nine days out of ten? Um, that's a good question. Um, I, I think for me it's know my limits and say, do you know what, I need a break. or So it's just putting up my hand and saying, you know what, I need to sleep in or just being a, a bit more selfish is the wrong word but just understanding my needs and asking for them. Um, is something I need to do. Yeah, <laughs> I did that last night. I just, I, um, you know, gave out soup yesterday on Thursday morning. The reason I'm saying it is I just did a lot of giving and I felt really, and it was beautiful and it's enriching as well and, you know, it's I love doing it. But at the by the end of the day I was feeling a bit depleted and I just asked my husband, I just actually tried to think of something I wanted so I could ask someone to do something for me <laughs> and I just got him to get me a hot water bottle and um, I didn't want a hot water bottle that much but I just really wanted someone to do something for me and that's what I could think of. Oh, my God, you would get a serious tick from my psychologist for that. She'd be like, excellent. Really? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I just, yeah, I just, that's just what I wanted. Um, so, yeah, I think it is, in, it's important. Maybe that's a thing, like, yeah, doesn't, you to ask for something, like, is that it? It's just that to, sh- to let yourself be someone that needs things from other people. Yeah, totally. You know, God, we've got to rework all of our systems. You know, when I had a baby and they people use that term, it takes a village, oh, my God. And then you, you look around the world at the moment and there's people, elderly people dying in these homes um, of this pandemic. People can't get in, can't see them. And, you know, mum was telling me last night the figure is like 75% of people in aged care facilities have not had a single visitor in the last year. And I just said, what? You know, that was just so devastating. Why on earth don't we have, we should be living in villages, you know, when you go to India and when you go to Vietnam, the kids are out on the street till 11pm, all their cousins there, their grandparents live with them. You know, that would just be such a better system, in my opinion, to have um, a proper village of people helping um, and, you know, keeping our young and our elderly together and supported. And I don't know, I just been, I've been thinking about that a lot today. Yeah, I think it's, uh, we'd probably deal with, um, you know, the end of life much better if we were surrounded by more old people. Um, and I think, you know, to, to value that wisdom and even to, I guess, yeah, to honour the decline, I think it's, um, yeah, it's, it, it's a, that's a big question, isn't it? And, uh, you know, there's that show um, old, old People for Four-Year-Olds or whatever that show is where they send kindergarten kids into old people's homes and you just think, you know, it's great, like there's connections and you'd, you'd be surprised um, Oh, you know, we there's so much connection to be had between people of all different types and at all different ages, and people. I don't, yeah, the fact putting segregating people by age. Actually, if you think about it, it seems pretty odd. It's a pretty odd thing to do. Oh, it's completely insane. And so these people that are elderly have got the time to to 
jiggle a baby on their knee for an hour, you know, or settle a colicky baby where the mum and the dad are tired because they've just gone through this experience. But, you know, it just, just like, what are we doing? You know, you just want to scream and say, why aren't we yelling about suicide rates? Why aren't we changing all the dynamics of the way we're doing it, everything. I know that's probably getting a bit big and utopian, but there's a lot, isn't there? There is a lot. And I guess, you know, one thing about the pandemic is that it does feel like an an opportunity to rethink lots of things. It's that real push and pull between here's the opportunity, but there's this massive back to to normal push as well. And um, I, I think one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast actually is because I was scared that things would just go quote unquote back to normal. You know, there is such a um, there is such a desire in us for this to be over. So, and the only thing we the only the only normality we know is the normality we had. So it's really hard to find the energy to build something fresh. But I think that it would be a shame not to use this as an opportunity to do so. But so why don't we talk about that? You know, you're you're an expert in hospitality and running restaurants. So why don't we talk about some of the things that you would like to see for our um, for you know how we come out of this and how hospitality could be different and better. Sure. Well, I think um, the first thing we've got to do is protect our visa workers. You've been the champion of that. We, we, to understand what visa work is to a restaurant is to understand what great food is. You know, all of that input that they bring in, they are the backbone. To, no one can go out and have great food uh, without visa workers. That's just how it is. And so, number one, we've got to make sure that people are being looked after and they're not. Uh, So thank you for everything you're doing. Number two, we need to get in there and everybody, every restaurateur has to go through their restaurant and figure out how to make it more um, eco-friendly. The wastage is out of control. Um, We're we're filling filling the earth. We've got homeless people on the streets. You know, I'll I'll walk past 20 people on the street today to get to work and they've got no food, we've got to absolutely upend our wastage and properly contribute um, in a more, what's the word I'm looking for, thoughtful way. You know, I think everyone's got to do that straight away. Um, Changes. What about from a mental health perspective in the industry, Kate? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Something I really dislike about the industry is this competitiveness and this... um, you know, like the idea that if a restaurant's quiet, oh, we're not going to go in there. In fact, they need you all the more. Um, you know, it, it, I, I can tell you firsthand what it's like when people look at a menu and keep walking because there's no one in the restaurant. It is devastating and you're just begging, wishing, hoping, you know, and I've had the, I've had the, the opposite end where it's been too busy and we couldn't look after everybody. But imagine if restaurateurs could say, oh, we're having a difficult year, um, can you come in? Like imagine if that was considered a strength to say that. Wow. You know, a big institution restaurant that's been there for 10 years. Imagine if they could say on Instagram, whatever forum, hey, guys, this has been a tough year. We'll flock there. But why do we consider that as a weakness? Mm. You know, just that's something that I think about. Mental health, um, you know, that whole old chef yelling, um, long hours in the kitchen, in the heat. Um, Adam's amazing at that, you know, and he always gives our kitchen hands a go in larder if they want to. So I'm really, really proud of 
all that he does there. Um, and he's not a yeller of a chef, which is amazing. But I think, yeah, we all need to um, create better systems around mental health and how we can properly protect the people that we work with. Because mm. do you think that you, you talked about hospitality as a in some ways as being a really good place for you to land because of the way it, it, uh, it allowed you to manage your own mental health. But do you think that the industry is particularly does draw in people who who is who is a bit like you or do you think that the, those you know those hot conditions those long hours the pressure do you think that creates a, a, an environment that's rife for mental health um, concerns yeah well I think you know the industry is known like Ella was saying Ella Wolf Tusker was saying you know it's more transient we're not necessarily making career people out of this a lot of them have got uni degrees so I think it naturally um, brings people in that uh, rethinking the way or, or not quite sure where they're going. So they might pick up a job for a year or two um, in the industry. And, you know, if I look back on my own past, there's plenty of times where I've been like, I just need a break from uni and I'm just going to stop and think about it for a bit. Um, and then, of course, there's a part where the alcohol kicks in and, you know, alcohol and drugs are rife in restaurants. And, you know, you get the end to the end of a long shift and you really want to drink and you have more. And so I think it definitely picks up a whole lot of people that, um, you know, drink during service, taste wine during service. Um, so I think there's people naturally that feel some sort of almost security in that, that numbing ability that you can drink at work and it's, well, it's part of your job. Does that kind of make sense? I don't know if I've answered that very well. Yeah, it does. I mean, are there particular things that you try to do as an employer to make sure that you're giving your employees the best chance at, at stability and mental health? Yeah, well, I mean, um, uh, uh, Michael and I, the kind of people that we are, it sounds hard to understand, but it's quite really quite honest. We've never really been interested in money. The way we've run the businesses has always been much more about sort of a lifestyle so, Michael, any other day of the week, we'll be taking someone out, checking on their mental health, off they'll go to Cumulus and have, you know, um, something to eat, something to drink, and, and he's always engaged with people, perhaps too much, perhaps we get a bit too casual in that area, but I think just the constant checking in, and Michael is excellent at, everybody knows how he feels, so if he's not feeling very good, you'll know about it. So I think he really brings that out in other people. Like, if you're not feeling good, tell me and we'll go out and we'll go see a movie or we'll do something. So I think, you know, it's not been the best way to do business, certainly not financially, um, but we definitely have this kind of protective, motherly, always checking in. Mm, sounds good. <laughs> it sounds very nurturing. <laughs> it's not good for the P&L, but um, it's, I, think people, I think people enjoy that style. Yeah. Do you feel like you've recovered from the, uh, the what you've been through in terms of, you know, that crush of devastation of the postnatal depression uh, and losing Oterre, the, rest, the restaurant closing? Yes. Good questions. Um, I think I've, um, I've recovered from the humiliation and the shame. In fact, now I, f I consider Oterre was kind of a gift teaching us to run our businesses better with less complacency and, my God, are we stronger. Um, and I'm very happy to say to people, hey, I had a restaurant that failed and, um, and I feel confident in that and I feel like I'm not being judged about that. Financially, no. I, you know, it's going to take us at least another five-plus years to try and recover. 
um, and the postnatal depression, I feel like I'm 70% there um, or maybe 80, probably 70, I think. Yeah. That's that's really good. So what about if someone was in a position now where they were they just weren't sure if they were going to make if their restaurant was going to make it out the other end of this. Um what would you say to them? What what kind of advice could we offer? Oh, great question. I mean, I'd like people to be able to say it or call it or because it's sort of like spreading the word, but but I understand that's kind of more devastating, you know, than rumor talks. I hear these guys aren't doing so well. So that's not good advice. What's the best advice? I mean, would it be something? I mean, I love how you said you've come out of it stronger. Like, is it? Is it? I mean, is it to to not to not um, equate a business's failure with personal failure? Is there something in there that you could you could find? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I don't want to name restaurateurs, but some of the very best restaurateurs have had restaurants go under in fact many um many 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 and and that that really got me through those hard times with Otero I was like but he did it and he's lost this and lost that and and he's fine and he's the coolest chef in Australia you know what I mean um so I think that's true um and you you will be stronger and you are stronger and I think anyone that's not feeling so good right now and I'm sure a lot of people aren't is just can you somehow pick up that phone or tell someone? Like I wish that I'd been uh, clearer and earlier to get to get to my GP and get a bit of help. I wish I'd recognised the signs a bit earlier. You know, I'm not doing so well. Um, so, yeah, I think my advice would be get that support straight away and then understand that that failure may in fact be what is going to contribute to the, six, to the greater success of something else. Perhaps it's here for a reason. I don't know. Yeah, that is. I think that's great. It's very, it's very heartening, and it's very human. Which I would have to say about this chat overall, uh, Kate. I think, I think you're amazing. I think you're so. It's so. I'm so impressed with you for sharing what you've gone through and for, you know, coming out the other side of it. And I mean, I, I yeah, just then the restaurants that you've created through this and out of this and yeah you just you're such a you and Michael like you've just brought such great things to Melbourne um and it just sounds like being one of your employees would be just like a really nice place to be so good <laughs> on you thank and thank you for sharing um I hope it hasn't been too wearing for you to speak so openly no I'm feeling I'm feeling I was nervous about this but I'm actually feeling pretty good now and I'm I'm proud I feel good to get it out there that's great I reckon you should be really proud I just want to say to anybody who's who's listening that if you need someone to talk to right now as Kate said do reach out to your GP if you need to get on the phone to someone immediately Lifeline Australia is 131114 there's also Beyond Blue uh, beyondblue.org.au and also check out Hospo for Life, which Liam Crawley talked about last week, um, specific specific help for people in hospitality. Uh, Kate, um, yeah, I, thanks again for speaking to Dirty Linen and thank you for being part of our mental health fortnight. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Danny. It's been great. Thank you very much. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue. 
hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Weeds production. <laughs>